Okay, uh, here we go again. I've had so many breaks in this. Thank you, dear cameraman, <laughs> for being patient with me. Thank you, folks, for your patience. Well, you know, if the Lord can use me uh, as weak and as uh, uh, incapable as I am, and as shy and proud and everything else, He can certainly use you. So maybe that's why the Lord has made me this way, so it will be an encouragement to you. And if that's the case, then I'm glad for my weakness. And certainly, as the Lord has said, we should be thankful for our weaknesses. It's a hard thing. It's a hard mindset to form, to be thankful for the things you really don't like about yourself. But uh, that's why the Lord is able to use us, because we're desperate, because we are weak, uh, and because we know we need Him. Welcome to the second act of Rising Up from the Ashes of the Children of God Cole, Firewalk with Olivia Eden, The Confrontation. This episode centers around how the world experienced Olivia Eden. It is significantly more explicit than our last episode. You will hear stories and references to sexual abuse involving minors. If you are under 17, you need the permission of a parent or guardian to tune in. Now that that's out of the way, let's begin our story. Eden and I are back. So, Eden, tell me, we keep jumping around and there are so many different places and spaces you've lived in the past 20 years. I feel like you've lived a hundred different lives. I feel like there are just a thousand Edens sitting in front of me. Can you start in chronological order, maybe at age five, because that's when people's memories first begin, and tell me some things that happened to you each year until about 19 when you moved to Austin. So it could be like Year five, I lived in this space, and these are some of the things that happened to me. If five is too early, that's totally fine. Just start at whatever age feels the best for you. And it's okay to skip some years. I definitely have some blockages in my memory, and I definitely don't remember the chronological timeline, but I'll do my best. So around five or six was when the cult leader died. So that's actually a really pivotal time in my life and in the life of everyone in the group. Because when he died, his wife, Maria, took over. She restructured the group. Don't dread the word change. Don't dread the word battles. Don't dread the word, word hard work or dread the word, word yieldedness because all those are good. And the Lord means to bring good out of them and he'll make you happy through them. At the end, you'll see 
that they were worth it all. You'll be happy for yourself. You'll be happy for the family. You'll be happy for those in the world that we're trying to reach with the Lord's Commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's still and always will be our main focus. That's what we're doing all this for. We, in, in our trips uh, that I've made with Peter, I always try to give out tracts, and you know, I always try to talk to people. And you know, those poor people in the world, you, you need to get out there once in a while and talk to them to see what they go through, to see how much they need the Lord, how much they need our message of hope and comfort and, and the love of Jesus because, uh, folks, we have it so good. So they downsized the communes from 90 to 150 people to the maximum of 35 people unless you were a service center, which meant that you were producing all of the publications, the videos, tapes, the CDs. In that case, you could have a bigger home. The family portrayed themselves as a sincere group of devoted religious young people. But then we met former members, Abigail Berry. I was molested very young and it disgusted me and it really made me feel awkward and it really made me feel bad. Mary Berg. They'll be now, and now smile children if they put the kids on a show or singing for someone and they, they may be beating them and abusing them in the back room like they were to me when I was nine years old. They were uh, sexually abusing me. Accusations are one thing, visual proof is another. We have acquired hours of videotape from a disaffected family member. The family claims these tapes were stolen. The tapes are very explicit sexually. We have had to edit them carefully for this report. So we had been living in Dallas, and we had to move out of this gigantic ranch that we lived in and find a smaller home. So my mom found one in San Antonio, and it was called the Oak Tree Home. I remember we got into a big U-Haul. There must have been a compartment between where the drivers sit and where all of the stuff fits in the U-Haul. But we were in this really small, enclosed space. And I remember just being so thirsty on our way. And it seemed like we were going on the longest road trip of all times. And I was so thirsty. We didn't have any water for some reason. And my mom was just like, just imagine that you have a lemon a slice of lemon and you're squeezing it into your mouth because that makes your mouth salivate and was apparently going to help me with my thirst. I'll never forget that.
So we get there in the middle of the night to this new home and everyone's there to greet us. And it was always exciting as a kid to move to another home or to go visit a new home because it was like a whole new world of people. So we lived out in the country of San Antonio in this really big house. And that was actually one of the best homes that we lived in. All of the kids were really amazing. They all became my best friends for actually a really long time. I'm still in touch with quite a few of them. And the adults in that home, too, were for the most part pretty amazing. They were there to live out the mission of the group. We had a singing group. So during Christmas time, Christmas is a really important time for the whole group. They would call it the Christmas push because that's when we would make most of the money for the whole year. So we would produce a lot of Christmas material with Christmas carols. And then they would create different teams, singing teams, performance teams by age group. And they'd send everybody out on the weekends or in the afternoons to go Christmas caroling, either in neighborhoods or in restaurants or in businesses or in big department stores. And then we would go sell our tapes and CDs and all of that kind of stuff. And then we would make all the money for the rent for maybe the whole year. What did they teach you about the birth of Jesus? When it came to Christmas, what did they teach you about what Christmas was and what it meant? Did you have any holy celebrations or was it just about money for the group? No, it was definitely super Christian-based. Jesus and his birth, that's what it was about. So we would always have a big like nativity scene and we would sing mostly Christmas songs that were centered around Jesus's birth. So it was exciting for us as kids because we really believed that it was the time of his birth and we were honoring him. And that was a really important time to be reminding people about the real meaning of Christmas. We even had a song called The Real Meaning of Christmas. So we could divert people away from the buying of gifts and remind them of the true meaning of Christmas. Did you get Christmas gifts? Sometimes we would have gifts donated to us by Blue Santa or other organizations that did Christmas gift runs for underprivileged kids, or they would have some other sort of donations and we would get something small. Some homes we wouldn't, but they did try to make it special for us in some ways. We would do a little bit of gift exchange. What things would you sell to people? So we produced all of our own music. 
CDs, videos, educational videos, and we would have posters, we would have tracks. I mean, any type of promotional material you can imagine we produced. We would have schools purchase our stuff in bulk. We would have businesses purchase our stuff. So sometimes we would sell wholesale to businesses because it was actually really well produced music. We had quite a few pretty famous and talented people that were part of our group, people that had been in theater in New York, in England. We had Jeremy Spencer, who was a part of Fleetwood Mac and was in the Hall of Fame for being a slide guitarist. I found out one of the main members of the band at the time, Jeremy Spencer, left the band to be in the cult, the Children of God, and is a pedophile who had sex with his own prepubescent children. The drummer Mick Fleetwood, the Fleetwood and Fleetwood Mac, said that he wants all members to come back for the 2021 tour all members you fuck if he doesn't take that back that dude fucking sucks too like how do you not know about what he did i searched his name on google and i found details in the first uh, page of results mick fleetwood toured with jeremy spencer a year ago with a bunch of huge names too i just don't know why they're associating with this person who to me should very clearly be in jail so we had people in our group that were extremely talented. And so the music that we produced was really well done and very meaningful. I mean, that's what people loved the most about our group was our music. Like a depraved Brady Bunch. Maybe that's a little strong. I would say that some homes may have been like that, but most of the homes were not like that. A lot of children were very earnest and really excited to be sharing love and joy and happiness with people. So it was more like a Christian Brady Bunch. Yeah. 
What happened during year six? So we stayed in that home until I was about seven or eight years old. We moved homes twice. So there was three or four oak trees that existed. Sometimes we would have a situation happen with the landlord and they would want to sell the house or they found out that there was 35 people living in their home or something like that. It depended on who the leadership were in homes. Sometimes they would disclose it to the landlord and sometimes they wouldn't. So if they hadn't disclosed it to the landlord and there was going to be a visit from the landlord, they would have everybody hide in like closets and under beds so that they wouldn't know how many people were living in the home. But a lot of times they would let them know and they would just let them know that we were missionaries and we would have people that let us live there and have communes. But if there was a problem, then we would have to find another home, which wasn't an easy task because you're moving like 35 people around. But the rent had to be within the budget. If we're dreaming, let's continue to dream. Though the whole world thinks we're way off the beat. around quite a bit. And then we moved to Austin when I was eight. And that was really heartbreaking for me because I lived with my best friends and I'd lived with them for a couple of years. And so it was just like losing my family. It was like going through a divorce. It was really hard. We moved to Austin. And even though it's like, you know, an hour away from San Antonio, it felt like I was across the world. I remember waking up in the middle of the night in the new home and crying and thinking that I saw Becky, my best friend, and crawling over there to touch her. And it wasn't her. It was another one of the kids. And this home that we moved to was a very different scenario than the one in San Antonio. 
the adults didn't really know how to support themselves financially. So it was a grungy home. It was pretty dirty. We got lice there. We had sub-quality food in that home and they let the teenagers do whatever they want, which for us was fun because we got to go outside and hang out with the neighbor kids that we called systemites. So anybody that wasn't in the group, they were in the system and we called them systemites. So they allowed us to actually hang out with the systemite. Like Noah and Abraham, Moses, Joseph, Joshua, Gideon, Samson, David, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Hezekiah, Zedekiah, Zechariah, Jesus. Peter, Paul, John, Saint, Augustine, Brother, Son, Sister, Moon, Savannarola, Martin Luther, Tyndale, and Knox. Don't put us in a box. Cause we're insane dreamers. And so that was exhilarating for us because we really hadn't had any contact with outside kids before. That's when my older sister started listening to music that wasn't a part of the group. She started wearing makeup and trying to find herself. And they allowed her to do that in that home. But that didn't end up translating very well in the next homes that we moved to. It ended up getting her in a lot of trouble and ended up being the result of us having to move quite a bit. We had some regional shepherds come and visit us. Shepherds were the spiritual leaders. The Family Care Foundation in Dulzura is a nonprofit missionary group run by former members of a religious cult called the Children of God. The Children of God, which now goes by the name The Family, is notorious for preaching open sexuality, a policy that led to widespread sexual abuse of children in the 1970s and 80s, according to former members. There was schedules of who would sleep with who, and the shepherds would decide who was going to sleep with who. Um, and they would actually post the schedules on, you know, the wall. So what the shepherds would do is they would go and visit each home and make sure that they were living up to the standard and following all the rules of the charter. So they came to our home. They realized that it was way below the standard of how the home should be. And they were like, if you guys don't change or fix the situation, then we're going to demote your status, which meant that you went from being the top status to a lower ranking status, which was really looked down upon by most of the members. So you did not want that to happen. And my mom was like, I don't want that to happen to us. So we're moving. So she found us another home in Saltillo, Mexico. We were there for about six months. From this point on, we had to move every six to eight months, which was really challenging for the next maybe like four or five years. 
As an adult, how do you feel about your current relationships? Do you feel like, you know, attachment, is that something that when you left the cult, was it something you struggled with? Can you tell me about that? Absolutely. Relationships have and still probably are my most challenging area because of the lack of permanence in my life and the fleeting relationships that I had growing up. When I left, what I realized now looking in hindsight was that I was able to like have super fast, strong, intimate, deep relationships. And then I was able to just cut them off immediately. And that led to dysfunction and very short-term relationships with people. I think my subconscious programming would create scenarios that would end up ending the relationship or causing me to pull away. So now within the last five years or so, I have friends that I've had and fostered and nurtured, but it's taken a long time to get there. Well, I mean, I think you've done a beautiful job with it, considering everything. So tell me about year seven in the life of Olivia Eden. Seven years old is a pivotal year for identity formation. That's when you really start to get an understanding of yourself and your personality. That's when it really starts to emerge. Can you tell me about that? So that's when we were in Austin. We moved to Saltillo, Mexico when I was seven, eight. Eight was when I really found myself starting to step into my more cognitive, intellectual thinking brain. I mean, I definitely was growing up much, much faster at a much faster rate than most children. But we moved to this home. It was another pretty abysmal situation. It was a mom and pop shop. So mom and pop shops were not supposed to exist in the group. Maria had set up the structure of the governing body to completely avoid that. So you were supposed to have a minimum number of voting adults over 16 and then for financial matters over 18 to avoid this type of a situation. But it still existed where there would be some power couple that just completely dominated the governing body of the home and they would make all of the decisions. So that was one of those homes. The guy was an extreme misogynist. He followed after the footsteps of the cult leader, honestly. And then had a bunch of single moms and his wife that were a part of this home. So they could really sway the vote of everybody that was in that home because he used the fear of getting kicked out of the home or losing your security there. So everyone would just vote in his favor. He would send my mom and one of the other single moms to the border of the U.S. So we lived in Saltillo, which is a few hours away from the border of the U.S., and they would have to fundraise for the home and bring the money back. And that was the type of fundraising they would do would be like canning at the stoplights, like panhandling basically at the stoplights and say that they're raising money for missionaries in Mexico. Super hard work, very laborious from morning till night, also very dangerous. And they were contending with the homeless people that were angry at them for taking over their turf. Did you need to panhandle? I did. And I think the first time I had to start doing that was in Mexico City when I was like 17.
So uh, many different homes led by, sounds like, mostly misogynistic men. That was your single-digit years. That was what happened to you. What about when you, uh, you know, got into the preteen years? People say that's 11 to 12, but for you, I feel like it would be 9 or 10 because you were growing up fast. So 9 to 11, can you give me a summary of what happened then? Or maybe actually just 9 to 10. 11 feels like it should be its own special year. Well, so just to wrap up Saltillo, so we would stay back with Augustine was his name. I think he died. And he was just like really abusive and would make us be like cleaning and scrubbing the house. He didn't have any emphasis on schooling. So the schooling took the back burner to us making sure the house was squeaky clean. And I had to take care of my little sister because a lot of times my older sister would go with my mom to fundraise. And I remember one night my little sister just started having this super intense nosebleed and it just went everywhere. And I had no idea what to do. And I tried to go tell Augustine and he just got so angry. He yelled at us and banged us over the head with this bucket. He was so mad at the mess that we had made. It was so frightening. And my mom wasn't supposed to come back for another week. So it was a scary situation. hated it there. And then they hated my older sister because she was always questioning things. She was wearing blue lipstick or black lipstick. And they had some shepherds, regional shepherds come through there and advise him on my sister. And they were like, we think she's possessed by man spirits. And so as a result, they told my mom that she had to leave. Possessed by man spirits? Yes. Which to this day, she still remembers and it really affects her. Like that really imprinted on her mind. What are man spirits supposed to be? 
David Bramberg, the cult leader, would talk about this with some women. And basically what he was talking about was that they were more on the masculine. They had more masculine energy than feminine energy. And I was talking about that with my sister the other day because she was still so affected by that. And I was like, look, I also lean heavily on my masculine side, too, especially when I'm in a place of leadership. For one, we had to because we had a single mom who we even from a very early age was not sure if she could fully protect and provide for us. So we had to step into that provider protector role really young. And that's all that is. I mean, the masculine energy has certain qualities and the feminine energy has certain qualities and everyone has both and some lean heavier on one than the other. But if that was our experience as children growing up, it makes sense that that was what we leaned into and what came off. Like my sister was very strong, very smart, very stubborn and just had that not very passive subservient, obedient energy. And that's what they were talking about. But in their limited brains, <laughs> could only describe it as being possessed by man spirits or demons, actually. Yeah, I meet some men. I think they are possessed by demons. extremely abusive home. When did you leave and what was the catalyst for you leaving? So that was the catalyst telling my mom that like they just didn't want my older sister in the home anymore. They were afraid that she was going to start. They would call them rotten apples. So they're like one rotten apple can ruin the whole bunch. And so they didn't want her influencing their children. So again, we had to find another home and it was becoming harder and harder because it's kind of like getting fired from a job. So if you get fired from a job, you don't want to give them necessarily as your referrals because they're going to give you a bad recommendation. And that was how the homes worked, too. Like you would apply for a job, then they would reach out to the shepherds and ask what the situation is with you and your family. And if they gave like, oh, well, Claire is my mom. She's really sweet, but her daughter is, you know, like then we wouldn't get accepted into a home. So because of that, the only situation my mom could find in time for us to be able to move was this little single family home in Austin that lived in a trailer park that was not, they were not of the highest status. They were at a lower level. So you could still be a part of the family and be in a single family home instead of a commune, but you were going to be FM instead of FD, which was the top status. So if you wanted to be a top status, you had to be reporting with a commune. You had to be full-time missionaries. You couldn't have a regular job. So for whatever reason, there were certain families that couldn't be a part of a home, like they were too dysfunctional, or maybe the guy was too controlling and wanted to control everything, and they ended up in their own little family. But they were still trying to be a part of the group. 
So we end up with this couple, Gary and Janet. He was this gigantic, over 300-pound guy. And then he had his tiny little Filipino wife. And they lived in a trailer, in a trailer park in Austin off of William Cannon. And we had never, at this point, like, things were just getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And their kids were nightmares, super violent. They would cuss. They had gold caps on their teeth. We had just never even seen anything like that. Like, we never saw anyone who was that big or obese before because the family had standards. You had to eat healthy. You had to exercise. Like, you just didn't see stuff like that. So it was really shocking in a lot of ways. Oh, my gosh. Wow. All right. So if you just every time we talk, I'm just like, oh, my God, Like I think I can't hear something that just everything you tell me. I'm like, OK, that's really awful. It can't get any worse. And I'm like, wow, it really can. Oh, my God. Wow. It just just keeps getting low. Like the bar, it's like a limbo. It's like, oh, can it drop any lower? Can Olivia go under it anymore? Yeah, I cannot believe you survived this. So limbo. Oh, my God. OK, so. If you were low status, how could you increase your status? You you got demoted, you know, fired. If you got kicked out of a bunch of houses and they saw you as low, how could you build your reputation, your status back up in this group? You would have to find a home that wanted you or that accepted you so that you could be reporting with the home. You were only allowed to not be reporting to a home for like 30 days, I think, was the, the most time you had to find a situation. So they would have to vote you in and then you'd have to go through a six-month process called babe status to rejoin where you take a STD test. And then those six months involve you like rereading the charter, which was the governing bylaws of the group, and the law of love, which was an 11-part series that taught you how to engage in sexual freedom consciously and, you know, involving Jesus. And then once you finished those six months, you couldn't watch movies or whatever. And then you took another STD test at the end of the six months and then you you rejoined. Unless you were a kid, like the kids didn't have to necessarily go through that process because they weren't having sex. The tapes bear witness to what Abigail and Mary were talking about. Child abuse, child sex, and using adult female members of the children of God as sexual lures to get converts. And most frightening, a doctrine of seemingly indiscriminate sex. Miriam Padilla. Having to have sex with people you don't love, um, being groped about. We're having to, you know, do videos of, of naked dancing and stuff like that. Those secret videos were made for David Berg, also known as Moses David. Mary Berg, David Berg's granddaughter, then and now. They put this silver ring on my hand and they, he said, I now wed thee, you know, I, David, now wed thee. And um, I was supposed to be now one of his wives and I was his grand grandchild. He also wanted to have sexual relations with me. Mary Berg was born into the children of God. Separated from her mother at age nine, she ended up living in her grandfather David Berg's house in the Philippines. I thought, you know, if he's supposed to be the prophet of God and he's so weird and strange and, and perverted and, and such a hypocrite, you know, maybe God's that way too. Mary says confessing her doubts to family members brought on the wrath of the man she called Grandpa. He started yelling real loud in tongues and, 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 and took a hold of my head and started shaking it real hard. And, and I thought, you know, this is it. I mean, I have reached the end of the line. This is the bottom. 
former members say the family controlled everything. They control you. Not only your mind, but your body, and your ego, and your personality, and your possessions, your time. They control everything about you. Abigail Berry lived with the family in Argentina. I never thought I'd live to be older than 20, because Jesus was going to come back in 1993. I grew up for 13 years thinking that. She says that she was sexually molested from the time she was seven, and that the family letter in 1987 banning child adult sex did not stop the practice. After the letter came out in mid-1987, um, I know that another girl continued to be seriously, seriously abused sexually, and I was molested by one of the shepherds in a home where I lived in 1988 when I was 15 years old. She escaped the family in 1991. I survived because I knew that if I gave up, the group would have proof um, to show other young people like me, who maybe wanted out, that those who try to leave or those who go after freedom are judged. And in California, Mary Berg, now 21 years old, has rescued her life and is starting over. Her burning wish came true, being reunited with her mother, whom she hadn't seen since age nine. Oh, oh you're so pretty. I never knew you would look like that. So if you were in a lower status, then you could have sex or kiss people that were not in the group. If you're at the top status, then you couldn't even kiss someone who is FM. Like, someone who is FD couldn't even kiss someone who is FM. Like, you could have zero physical contact with someone who is of a lower status. Interesting. So there's a sexual caste system. Yeah, pretty much. So, and that wasn't always the case. So when he had the whole FFing practice going on of them recruiting people through sex, it wasn't like that. But then when AIDS happened, he closed the ranks to protect the group. So that was the process to rejoin. The Ten Commandments were done away with by the law of Jesus Christ, the law of love. God now only has one law, the law of love, to love God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. He said, Jesus himself said, the Son of God. In this law, he said, dwelleth all the law and all the prophets. All fulfilled in this one law. Just this one law of love fulfills all ten and all the rest put together. So we don't need them anymore. We're no longer under the laws of Moses. We're no longer under the Ten Commandments. We're no longer under all that religious follower all and rigmarole and form and ceremony and temple worship. All you have to have to worship God today is your own heart. And you can carry this temple, which is the temple of His Holy Spirit. God's Word says so. This is the temple of His Holy Spirit today. And this is where you must worship Him. Within the temple, the holy heart in your, the temple of your heart, into which Jesus said, I will come in if you just open the door. Open the door of your heart. Make your body my temple and I'll come in. His kids went to this private school called the Good Faith School in Austin, which was essentially a house with this older woman who smoked like a chimney in the house. And she had kids from 
five or six all the way up to 17 going to school in this one teeny little house that had three rooms and it was in South Austin and we would be going to school there. It was just like a really weird school and we'd go there and do school. But the cigarette smoke was so thick. Another thing we had never experienced before. And it was just like, whoa, what is this? And in the afternoons, they would let us watch music videos, which was cool for us because we'd never experienced that. So he had his own very interesting fundraising technique that he would have us do. We would go to the dollar store and get a gigantic bag of those super pop lollipops. And then he would drive us around and drop us off at different restaurants like Waterburger, the one that's right on Bar- that used to be on Barton Springs. Oh, no, it's still on Barton Springs. Yeah, right on Barton Springs. He'd drop us off there. He'd be like, make sure no one sees you. And we'd jump out of the car. We'd run in there with our lollipops and we'd go from table to table and be like, hi. We're raising donations for a field trip that we're going on for the Good Faith School. Can you buy a lollipop? And then we would have them, you know, give us a dollar, five dollars. And I got really good at selling these lollipops. Like I just figured out like what to do, what to say to people, compliment their dress, compliment this. And I would get like $50. One time I got $100 for a lollipop. And I just became very good at selling at that age. We would go to Sonic. We would go to the mall and we'd go around and sell lollipops. And we would give most of the money to him, but he would allow us to keep a little bit of it. So he'd give us like an allowance. That was the first time in our life that we ever had our own money. So that was super exciting. I would spend all my money on buying little gifts for my mom and my sisters. So there were things that kept us like, oh, okay, this isn't so bad. We have our own money, even though the situation was extremely abusive. that house what house did you move to after I just am trying to get a timeline there's just so much stuff that's happened to you in all of these years it's very intense how did this shifting landscape feel to you as a child I mean at what point did you become aware that this was not normal a few things started happening that were really scary like we had a guy when we were leaving that water burger I'll never forget it we were getting in the car 
And this guy came running out. He jumped in his truck. He pulled out behind the van and he jumped out. He's like, what are you doing with these kids? And Gary was like, what are you talking about? He's like, you know what I'm talking about. What are you doing with these kids? I thought that you guys had permission to be selling there. And I went and I talked to the manager and they had no idea who you guys were. And he's like, I'm calling the cops. And I was sitting in the backseat. My heart was racing. I was so afraid. And somehow Gary talked his way out of it and the guy let us go. But then another time, this lady was like, haven't you guys already gone on that field trip? Because it had been months later. I had to lie. And I had to think on the spot and just say, oh, no, this is another field trip and make up a whole nother field trip that, of course, we were never going to go on. But from that age is when I really learned the necessity of lying for survival and to not get into trouble. So Gary was really still trying to live within the sexual freedom of the group and was coercing my mom to hook up with him somehow, even though he was just huge and I don't even know how he was able to do that. But his wife did not know about it. So he didn't tell her about it, which is completely against the rules of the group, too. Like everything has to be disclosed. Everything has to be agreed upon. So she ends up finding out. She freaks out. She goes and tells Miss Maxwell, who's the principal of the school. Miss Maxwell goes batshit crazy. Like, I remember Gary was coming to pick us up and she jumped on the hood of the car and was screaming and like, "Ah you know, just so angry at him for what he was doing. And we were shocked that night. My mom comes in at like eight o'clock at night. She's like, girls, we have to pack up our bag and leave. So we pack up. The only place she knew to go to at this point was my grandma's place in Jacksonville, Florida. So we get in the car coming out of the rain the hardest rain the world has ever seen turn in your nightmare for a dream She doesn't have much money, so we're stopping and provisioning all along the way at restaurants and hotels. So she would ask them to give us a free hotel room or give us free food at a diner or something like that. And my mom was actually very good at provisioning because she was just so sweet and had such a loving energy that people wanted to help her and her three kids. So we make it to my grandma's house and we're there to recoup and try to figure out what to do next. We would have contacts and referrals all over the U.S. from people that were within the network. So we found this couple named Manuel and Shamaya, much older in their 60s, 70s couple that were also FM. So they were a single family FM home. They lived right outside of New Orleans. We stopped there. We met them and then we moved on and uh, went to my grandma's. My mom stayed in contact with them and told them the situation with my older sister because she had tried to get us back into the Oak Tree home in San Antonio. And they were like, you guys can come, but take my sister cannot come. She was 15 at that time. So because my mom was so under ideological possession where she was like, it's God's highest will for us to be at the highest status. I need to find something to do with my daughter. So she asked this couple if my daughter could stay with them. 
And of course, this lady's like, yeah, we want a 15-year-old who can do all the work around here. So she's like, yes. And so on our way back down to San Antonio, we dropped my older sister off. I actually didn't remember any of this until I did my first MDMA therapy session. And this all came back and I realized that that was a huge fracture in my own psyche. And it was like losing my best friend. She was everything to me. She protected me. She taught me so much. I looked up to her. I just was so close to her. And then losing her like that was really, really, really tough. I'll be getting the power, a power from above, slap them demons around, blown them down below the ground, keeping a vision strong, one of the hardest things to do, but by God's receding grace, we're gonna be the chosen few, devils tempt to me, time and time and time again, with his vices in his traps, but I got my savior all around me, and you know what he does, yo he's got my back, uh, the word of God is sharp, sharper than I'm an evil source, likes to do evil like a knife on a butcher's board, evil ain't gotta hold on me, that's the truth, and with the word of God, I will say to the room, check it, check it, check it, check it, check it, So losing your best friend, MDA unlocked this memory for you. Olivia, I don't know how you can keep track of it. It just so much stuff happened to you every day. Was there ever a period of calm and quiet in your life? My mom could turn everything into an adventure and make it into something fun. She would help us to find the joy in the little things. Like for us, staying at a hotel and going on a road trip could be fun and exciting. And we got to watch a movie on the TV in a hotel room, which was to this day, like that's how my sisters and I bond is watching movies because that was when we would have time of peace and quiet and laughter. And it was exciting because you weren't really allowed to be watching more than one movie a week, if that within the group. So to have a little bit more freedom and flexibility in watching movies was exciting for us. So to do that was fun to get to stay in a new hotel and have the continental breakfast at a La Quinta Inn. I remember being so excited. I couldn't go to sleep because I was thinking about the frosted loops that we were going to eat in the morning. Because that was like sugar we weren't allowed to eat in the group either. So little stuff like that. Those were happy moments for us. And I remember 
for the most part, being just a super happy, cheerful kid because that was the face that she would put on for us. Like, this is fun and like, this is all an adventure and Jesus is going to protect us and he's with us and, you know, like, let's pray and everything's going to be okay. And then going to visit my grandma, you know, we got a little bit of stuff there. So she was so positive and had such an extremely positive mindset about adversity and challenges that we didn't perceive it to be this crazy, scary situation, if that makes sense. Even when the people were screaming at you and saying, I'm going to call the police, this does not seem normal. Of course, in those moments, those stuck out. I mean, they stick out in my memory now. Those were scary situations. But children are very resilient, so they don't just stay stuck in that. You know, it's like you're constantly looking at your parents to know how to act or how to react in certain situations and how to get through certain situations. My mom, even though she's the one who chose to raise us in this environment, was also our saving grace in a lot of ways because of her super positive mindset. At least that was my experience with her. So traveling back, we dropped off my sister. We end up back in San Antonio in another oak tree home. At this point, they had moved to another home super nice one. It had a pool and everything. And I was reunited with Becky, who had stayed in that home, stayed in San Antonio since we had left her. Our relationship had shifted a little bit because we had been away from each other. She had become super cool in San Antonio, all of the young people that were our age. So you're right in that I grew up quite a bit earlier. So at this point, I'm like 10, almost 11. And I'd already started my period and was becoming progressively very boy crazy. I think that was the height of getting super boy obsessed. Like with Becky, we would have pictures of guys everywhere. And that's all we would talk about. We would sneakily put on makeup and we would try to go out into the neighborhood and meet as many of the neighbor boys as we could. I mean, it was all that we thought about. How old were you when you lost your virginity? I was finally 15 when I lost it, but not for a lack of trying way before that when I was like 12 or 13. And the sexual abuse from the cult members, what age did that typically start for members of the cult? Was it when they were teenagers? Was it when they were 18? What was the cutoff? So when David Brandberg was still alive, he rolled out some grooming type situation where he would have the adult sleep with the 12, 13, 14-year-olds. 
But when he died and after they raided the homes in different countries and took the kids away, Maria made pedophilia an excommunicable offense. So by the time I was that age, all the rules had changed. You couldn't have sex until you were 16. You had to have parental permission until you were 17. And then 17, you could decide for yourself if you wanted to have sex. And then you could have sex with up to 20-year-olds. 21 and up could not have sex with people under 18. 18-year-olds could decide who they wanted to have sex with without an age limit. They tweaked those rules depending on what the law was. So those changed a little bit, you know, and they would send out these new notifications through the publications that came out every month that had the new rules or the new guidelines that they were going to release. Lift up your sword, look to heaven's reward. What was it like growing up in the Children of God religious sect? This rare home video of a teen training camp in Mexico from 1986 gives an inside look at the group that currently goes by the name The Family International. Self-proclaimed prophet David Berg founded the religious group in the late 60s as a revolution for Jesus. The group evolved into a free-love Christian sect that advocated open sexuality even among children. Former member Jim LaMattery left the group in 1975, shortly after Berg started preaching his law of love. They opened the door for their children to have sex with each other and sex with the adults. Teenagers who didn't want to go along with that were typically sent to these victor camps. Lamattery says teenagers were subjected to harsh discipline and abuse at some of the camps. Several well-known molesters had been moved from teen camp to teen camp around the world, allowed to essentially go in and do what they wanted to do. Lamattery says one of those men was Phil Sloan, a longtime cult member who, according to San Diego Juvenile Court records, molested Lamattery's niece. LaMattery also claims his two daughters were abused and placed in teen camps. Now LaMattery is telling his story to the FBI. My daughters were put there by their mother um, uh, for over a little over a year, and um, they've given statements to the FBI. A source inside San Diego's FBI office confirms an investigation is in its early stages. The FBI also says it believes Jim LaMattery is a credible source of information. This is a serious investigation. LaMattery is also talking to the IRS about two San Diego County charities with close ties to the group, Activated Ministries in Escondido and the Family Care Foundation in Dulzura. There's a very committed set of people in the FBI and the IRS who really want to resolve this problem. In response to the FBI probe, Family International spokesperson Claire Borowick wrote in an email to Local 8, quote, no family member has been contacted regarding this FBI complaint, and quote, any citizen can file any complaint against anybody. However, that does not substantiate their claims. The Family International says it banned all sexual contact with children in 1986 and apologized to victims. Leaders also say child abuse was not widespread. Beth Shelburne, Local 8 News. Before about age 12, children really look to their parents to see what behaviors they should model. When you reach 11 to 13 that age, you start to really look at your peers. 
What behaviors were you seeing from your peers that you wanted to engage in? And who were your peers? Like, where were you living in your middle school years? And also, middle school is an awkward time for everyone. Can you explain what it was like for you? It was definitely an awkward time for me. I had a really good group of girlfriends that I'm still friends with today, a few of them. And we lived in San Antonio, me and Becky. And then we had these friends that were sisters that lived in another home. And we would get together as much as possible, like once a week or something like that. And we would walk in the neighborhood and try to flirt with boys in the park. I was really shy and I was really uncomfortable in my own skin. But I followed Becky around like a little puppy dog. She was very confident. She was a lot taller. She was already developing. She already had boobs at that point. And so did the other girls. So I was just mimicking their behavior, you know, trying to impress the boys. And we would have these big fellowships. It's what they were called. They were called where all the homes would get together and we would meet out like some big park or right by the lake, Canyon Lake. And we would have big barbecues and we would sing. And so then that's when we would meet and engage with all the kids that were in the home. So there'd be a couple hundred people. And it was just like how middle school is. There's the cool kids and the not super cool kids. And I remember that's when Becky would separate herself from me a little bit because I just wasn't as cool as her. And I was super painfully shy. So I had stuff like that happening, which just made me just want to like fall into myself and dissolve. So that was tough. San Antonio middle school age was rough except for the times when Becky and I were getting along and I got some positive reinforcement from some neighbor boy or something like that. Do you feel like you were seeking out attention from men to give you self-esteem or a feeling of belonging or was it related to attachment? Can you tell me about that? Being boy crazy is not necessarily neurotypical for teenage girls, but 10 and 11, it's a little early to start feeling that way. I think we were just on the fast track in general. So we were emitting behavior that you see in 14 and 15 year old because we started really early. I started puberty really early. I think it was just a lot of, you know, having grown up with a really sexually charged environment. That's just what you're used to. And there definitely was an element of self-esteem and validation and all of that kind of stuff. That's certainly how I think I perceived that. That's what we were looking for. So you were not sexually active until you were 15, but there was a lot of sex happening around you. Were you shielded from it at all or were they just very open about it? I mean, they didn't have sex in public. It was always in private, but we knew who was having sex with who. Like we knew which adult was sharing with who because they would have to use a special room or something like that. And everyone just kind of knew what was going on in the home. So we knew what was happening. Do you feel like that was abusive? Would you classify that as having been abusive? No, I wouldn't. And it's not a marker for trauma. Yeah, you would know more about that than me. Personal story segment tonight. A four-year-old named Kyle Staunton is caught up in a very difficult situation. Apparently, his mother, Angie, is a member of a religious cult called The Family that advocates open sexuality, have sex with anybody you want. Now, Kyle's father, Paul, used to be a member of the cult, but has now left and wants custody of his son, saying the cult is a very bad place. San Diego judge has ordered the inspection of the family commune before he decides the case. Joining us now from San Diego is Paul Staunton and his attorney, Robert Bauman. Angie Staunton would not appear with us this evening. Um, okay, Mr. Staunton, you were raised, I guess your parents were in this family deal. Tell us about what this is. 
Our family is an organization, it's a religious organization, and uh, they have some pretty, um, um, they have some beliefs that are, are pretty un, unorthodox. Like? Um, well, <laughs> um, they, um, they, uh, they believe in uh, having free love uh, um, in the communities. Um, they believe in uh, different, um, um, including Jesus in uh, sexual acts. Um, they believe in, um, uh, they don't believe strongly in education, which is a big concern for me uh, with my child. Um, and also, um, they don't uh, believe um, in uh, having a lot of uh, medical attention for the children. Okay. Now, how many people are in this community in Escondido, California? Um, I think the base number is about 25, but they fluctuate probably up to 35 uh, people coming and going. All right. So, and they all have all the adults have sex with each other. Um, well, it's um, yes, they're able to, and they, it's promoted um, for them to go back and forth. Um, and it, they have and sex. Uh, they have gay and heterosexual sex. Anything goes, right? Um, no, um, they're uh, strictly against uh, homosexuality. Um, in fact, that's probably um, something that they're really strict with. They, they don't allow at all. Um, and they will uh, excommunicate you from the okay. organization. I, I was misled but, um, then. I thought there was uh, another component to that. Now, the children, uh, do they have sex with children? Um, back uh, some 20 years ago or so, uh, they did condone uh, sexual relations with uh, children. But um, as of sometime in the mid-80s, they, uh, they uh, no longer... Um, believe that. Okay, because apparently your wife, uh, you say that your ex-wife was abused sexually. Is that true? Um, yes, she, she was when she was a kid. And now is that why you want to get your child out of there? So you were chasing affection from boys. Do you think that stemmed from just the behavior around you? Like, were you seeking out fatherly love? Like, were you seeking out some sort of attachment with the people around you? We were just wanting to hang out with boys that were our age. And remember that I also had a bunch of fatherly figures that I lived with. So I had that in my life as well. Like in every home, we had some sort of adult male or multiple adult males that took on that fatherly role for all of the kids in the house. So if anything, I was trying to get away from that. So tell me about your teenage years. So I got connected to essentially my purpose at a very young age, so like 16, which made the later years of my life that much more painful and difficult. It's like when people have a psychedelic experience, it wakes them up to everything that's happening in the world to something that could be so much more beautiful and beyond the life that they live in that it makes returning to their current situation really painful and it can make it really hard to revert back to the life that they used to live because they already know how amazing life can be and that can actually throw people into depression and create dysregulation in a lot of ways. And so that's what happened to me. There was a certain point before I got put on probation that I was super aligned and connected with my purpose of helping people and bringing them peace and solutions to their problems, helping them to feel connected and belonging. And I had a series of very metaphysical, phenomenal events happening, and it was the best time of my life.
Here concludes the second episode of Rising Up from the Ashes of the Children of God Cult, Firewalk with Olivia Eden, The Confrontation. Our third and final episode, The Resolution, will be up in a few weeks. By the way, I just want to say here, I cannot believe someone gave me three stars on Apple Podcasts and said that my content wasn't interesting. I am literally reporting on a sex cult, a demonic Brady Bunch. There are show tunes. Like, do you fall asleep watching Kill Bill? Do you chew batteries? Because coffee isn't strong enough. Come on. Please rate me five stars. Let's <laughs> go.